This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the line from Chicago today is Ben Beard. He's the author of a fascinating new book entitled The South Never Plays Itself, a film buffs journey through the South on screen, from Birth of a Nation to Green Book. Ben, welcome to the journal. Uh, thank you for having me, Walter. All right, let's talk a minute about who you are, where you came from, and how you ended up in Chicago. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia in the late 70s, and then I moved to Pensacola, Florida with my family in the early 80s, and I grew up in Pensacola before going to college in Montgomery, Alabama, and then moving back to Atlanta as an adult. Uh, I hadn't left the South at all uh, till I was in my 20s, and then I roamed and rambled, uh, traveled the earth a little bit, and then I married a woman who's from here, and I've lived here for a long time now. You describe yourself as a buff, but looking at your bibliography, I would say you are far more than that. How many movies have you seen in your life? Uh, more than anyone I know. So uh, thousands upon thousands. And it's a really funny thing. The publisher insisted on the term buff because she was afraid that if I said critic, it would alienate some readers. And then if I said fan, it would make me seem more of an amateur. So, you know, that was a that was like a little side discussion. I've seen thousands. I, I couldn't hazard a guess. I mean, I watch them all the time. Okay. And part of your life, you were, a, well, a film critic, right? That's right. I reviewed films in Atlanta and in Montgomery, Alabama when I was, uh, I was, you know, in my 20s, early 20s. And I ended up interviewing some actors and directors and going to junkets and stuff. Most of that's gone now. I think only a few major papers still hold those kinds of critics. Everything's migrated online. But yeah, I was a, I was a film reviewer and happy. Okay, let's dive in. When we get towards the end, I'm going to read your list of the movies you say encapsulate the South. But before we get that, I mean, let's just let's just start off with what you present is that Hollywood and the American public have been wrestling with what is the South? Who is a Southerner? And that portrayal of black and white on film has been going on for well over a century now. And you start with Birth of a Nation, and I think with uh, good justification. So I'll throw the ball to you. Yeah, so Birth of a Nation was the first blockbuster, and it's the movie that Hollywood kind of made its money on and built itself on. It's the first movie that's made by a what we would call an auteur, right? It's one guy basically was in charge of it, D.W. Griffith. And it's also uh, obscene, uh, horribly racist, violent, uh, scary, frankly. And the KKK are the heroes. They're the good guys. And Birth of a Nation in the movie, the nation is the Southern white nation. It's not like a reformed uh, union. So the, the movie gave us a whole pot of lies, some of it exquisitely filmed, but so right from the start, the movies were problematic and compromised. And Ben, that plays into the narrative of what happened with this country after Reconstruction, where it people began to talk about reunion and reaction, and you have the joint veteran celebrations at Gettysburg of the men in gray and the men in blue. Everybody shakes hands, and all's right with the world. So this really plays into a narrative that's been going on since the 1870s. But on screen, as you say, it's it's violent. When the film was shown here in South Carolina in the upstate at Spartanburg, people actually drew their own six guns and shot up the screen. That's incredible. A friend of mine who was a reporter went to a KKK rally in the 80s where they showed Birth of a Nation and they were cheering it on and it was a kind of big party for them. So yeah, I mean, the movie's uh, ultra disturbing and yet it's studied, it's heralded, it's celebrated in, in some ways. I mean, we've really, this is, we've turned the corner recently, but even five, six years ago, it was sort of heralded outside of its politics and 
the harm it created, right? Because the KKK reformed after the movie and a lot of people died because of that. Spike Lee tells a story, it's in the book, where he's in grad school and they showed the movie and he was the only black film student and they showed the movie and then they were talking about it and everyone was talking about camera angles and techniques and um, the narrative, but no one was talking about what the movie's actually about, right? And uh, so Spike Lee was like, wait, what's wrong with this picture? In the late 1980s, I was teaching, visiting at Middlebury and the State Humanities Council was doing a thing on films with the local libraries around the state, and they had Birth of a Nation, and they asked me would I go and do commentary. And what came out of that is white Vermonters looking at this film said, okay, that's the way white Southerners are today. That's one of the traps, right, that the South is the repository of America's racial sins and the racist past and the racist present. And we were tricked into thinking that by the movies, right? And in Green Book, there's a key scene where the two leads are pulled over in the South by some cops and they're, you know, beaten up and arrested. And then they're pulled over again, just over the Mason-Dixon line. And the cop walks up and he's like, oh, hey, fellas, you, you guys need some help. And it's so ridiculous, right? It's, so, it's such a rid- ridiculous statement in cinema. But uh, there it is, right? And that was just a couple years ago. Well, in your book, you take the South through a lot of creations, recreations, misdirections. And some of it's based upon works by eminent Southern writers from uh, Faulkner to Tennessee Williams and even Pat Conroy. So let's, you know, move beyond Birth of a Nation, and I'm just going to read some of your chapter titles, because that'll give us an idea for our listeners of where you're going. After Birth of a Nation, you look at William Faulkner and The Ghosts of Tobacco Road, which is going to bring to mind a lot of our listeners immediately, Erskine Caldwell and his works, Tennessee Williams and The Terrors of the Flesh. Then you, you pick out three southern states which I thought was fascinating, Deep South Sleaze and Louisiana Decay. Then you have the Florida Experiment, and you admit right up front you're not really sure Florida is part of the South, but in Hollywood it is. And then Bigger Than Texas, Old Time Religion and the Klan, Night of the Hunter and the Southern Horrors, Winter in Dixieland, Crime and Southern Noir, Nashville Country, Soul, Blues, Gut Bucket, and The King, Good Times at the 90 Cafe, President Bush and the Endless Wars, Black, Unlike Me, and then you have an epilogue. So Faulkner and Erskine Caldwell, two, two very different authors. Between them, they have views of the South that build on the birth of a nation, whether it is with class, with color, so let's look at Faulkner's South first, how it appeared on film. Well, Faulkner's really interesting because he uh, worked in Hollywood for a long time, like 20 years. And his novels, uh, which I've come around to, I mean, I love uh, As I Lay Dying, but I used to really have a trouble with him because he's, he's difficult in a kind of obstinate way. But uh, most of his novels, most of his work has been adapted to the big screen, which is crazy uh, because they're interior they're complex. Uh, they're often out of order. The narrators uh, shift in mid-sentence sometimes. So he gives us a South that is the urban and the rural right next to each other often, filled with blood feuds and illiterates right next to, to sophisticates, a South that honestly is probably pre- pretty realistic to what he grew up in. But uh, it is not sentimental or nostalgic at all. In fact, his books are filled with cruelty. The films, uh, he worked on a film called The Southerner. He gave uncredited screenwriting to The Southerner, which was a, one of the great movies in the book but, that I've seen by a French director, Jean Renoir. And in that, it's about a Southern family trying to make it. And a guy, his uncle, as his uncle's dying, tells him, you need to own your own land. So he goes to own his own land and struggles through the hardships of just trying to be independent in America. And it's a magnificent movie. Faulkner South, as, as you mentioned, uh, is one that is besieged by tradition and racism, regret. And the folks are 
pretty much a rogues gallery. Uh, their failures, their rakes, their knaves, not a whole lot of socially redeeming quality there. No, that's right. And the movies reflect that. They're, they've made uh, Sanctuary, which is a truly appalling novel. They've adapted it a couple times, and each adaptation is, is equally uh, appalling. James Franco made As I Lay Dying uh, maybe 10 years ago, and it's a very strange, uh, loose adaptation. And they've they, all of them, though, are filled with uh, desperate uh, characters who are their only resources tend to be their cunning or their cruelty. And the movies, the qualities that make him a special novelist don't translate to the big screen, but people watched them. And so there is this idea of the South being more violent than the rest of the country. Southern violence leads straight into Tobacco Road and Erskine Caldwell. Uh, God's Little Acre. Right. So Erskine Caldwell, I read a bunch of his books weirdly in my 20s, and I think he's really not a good writer at all. But he was popular, and his books were made into movies, including these two big ones, Tobacco Road, directed by John Ford. He made it right around when he made The Grapes of Wrath. But in The Grapes of Wrath, the poor, desperate, busted-out farmers have dignity and integrity, and they're played by Henry Fonda, and they're sort of being harried by forces that they can't control. In Tobacco Road, they are vicious illiterates who are mocked constantly by the film. And I think this is fascinating, right? That it's okay, it's okay to mock and disparage desperate Southern white farmers, yeah. right? Like hey, that's okay, yeah, even though their lives are horrible, hey. but... Yeah. They're simpleton. I mean, this this is what yeah. Al this is what Al Cap was doing in Little Abner. I mean, I had at one time in, in my possession a paperback of Tobacco Road, and you've got this semi-clad Daisy May kind of person on the cover of the paperback, because if the men are violent, then the women are cheap and slutty. Right, and I, I'll say now, God's Little Acre was made by Anthony Mann uh, about. F- 10 years later or so, maybe 14 years later. And it's a remarkable film. It's a kind of a forgotten gem. It's, it's wonderful. But Anthony Mann, that book, that story is about a guy played by Robert Ryan who thinks there's Confederate treasure on his beautiful farmland. So instead of farming, he's just digging up, uh, like destroying his land, trying to find this treasure that doesn't exist. And he's got all of his family involved in this scheme. It has the novel has all the same problems of Tobacco Road, but the movie, it's sort of a drama noir with like elements of gothic. It's also really funny. I guess what I'm saying is that same author, same approach, two films. One of them really, I, I would say, gave us the idea that that, that poor Southerners are Morlocks. They're, they're vampires, <laughs> or or, or uh, you know, they're 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 the precursor to Deliverance. And the other one is that they're, they're dreamers who might be lost or even misguided, but they're not beyond redemption. In this era, and we're talking really the, the 30s and 40s, other than perhaps Gone with the Wind, the women, you know, they're dutiful, they're a sex pot, they're an old maid librarian. They're not particularly nice. And again, I'm accepting Gone with the Wind, but in terms of the movies that we were just talking about. Correct. There's a couple of exceptions. Little Foxes, which is a wonderful movie by William Wyler, which stars Betty Davis. And she, she's a villain in the movie, but she's complicated and has agency and she drives the plot. And then Jezebel, which was written by my great, great uncle. I have no other ties to Hollywood, but Jezebel, which is also by Betty Davis, which was Warner Brothers attempt to uh, get out ahead of Gone with the Wind. So they released this. Um, it's overheated. But again, she's driving everything and is a complicated character. It's set in New Orleans. Uh, Betty Davis really wanted to be Scarlet. That's right. And so the, the story is that they, they wanted her and they wanted her to do it with Errol Flynn. But she didn't think Errol Flynn was a good actor and that it like basically it all kind of started to fall apart then. And she was notoriously difficult. And I think Selznick wanted the ad campaign of like who's going to play Scarlet to drive interest into the movie. So I think he wouldn't have picked Betty Davis anyway. But yeah, she was she was also the leading contender, according to the all the history books, for the role. It's kind of hard to see. Well, first of all, 
I look upon Betty Davis as her characters. They are hard, and not that Scarlet isn't hard, but I can't see Betty Davis being giddy and flighty. Even with Jezebel, it doesn't quite come off. I mean, she's... Um, she's too dominant. She dominates every scene, even when she's supposed to be, even in like um, some of those Irving rapper romance movies that she made, which they're quite good. But yeah, she, even when she's supposed to be demure or um, unassuming, yeah, she dominates. She's too powerful. Ben, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Ben Beard about his book, The South Never Plays Itself a film buff's journey through the South on screen. We can move on and just mention a couple of other films from this particular era. You've got Intruder in the Dust, which is really pretty hard-edged. Let me say, also, not only does it get a lot of things right, uh, it's a wonderful movie. And I'm not sure why it's another one that is on the margins of, you know, people don't watch it in schools, People don't really talk about it, and I, I thought it was remarkable. Is, is it because of the dialogue? I mean, it used terms for that day that were historically accurate, but today I think audiences might have difficulty with them. Yeah, maybe, but it was also complicated. It has a sophisticated uh, view of race relations and of, of people, and some of the heroes are not very heroic, uh, and some of the villains are sort of tragic, it's also a very funny movie. But what I mean is a good movie. It's like a, it's a beautifully made film. Clarence Brown, I think. Yeah, but of course, the language, we don't want to hear it in our ears now. But the film, it's an important one. That, that's one I think should be, should be given a, another look, even a revival somewhere. I agree with you. Uh, and I, I'd like to move on now to the chapter that has one of my all-time favorite films, and that is Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Uh, oh, yeah. T- Tennessee Williams and his world. And you talk about the terrors of the flesh. And how about explaining that term for our listeners? So Tennessee Williams was a, a guy who was gay in the South and struggled. He wanted to be an artist, wanted to be a writer. He knew he had talent, but uh, didn't know how to do it. So he was he had a, like a lot of things working against him. So he had a very rich um, interior life filled with contradictions and yearning and desire that was unfulfilled. Supposedly he had no, he had zero sexual encounters till he was 25. And I think this informs a lot of his writing because he eventually started writing plays and short stories and even novels. And in his plays, which were all adapted into movies and most of them are excellent. Most of them are excellent. And Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is one of my favorite movies too. But the films are filled, they're all set in, almost all set in the South. They're filled with um, oversexed and undersexed people in incredibly hot environments where they are drinking too much, talking too much, but not saying what they need to say. And there uh, are monsters, like real monsters in, inside like human skin. And so he gives us the South of old, you know, former plantations with wealthy people swirling cocktails around while there's heat lightning in the distance and kind of predatory sexual people. And I I think that's also like something that a lot of people see when they think of the South, they think of that kind of imagery. And not just cat on a hot tin roof, you get to streetcar named Desire. And I think it's fascinating that the two male actors of this generation that identify with Southern film, Marlon Brando and Paul Newman, are clearly not Southerners. It is amazing. And uh, they're both really good actors, and, and they're both really, really attractive men, right? They're really muscular, good-looking guys. But, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And I don't know why that is. I actually I have no idea why, and I don't think anyone does, why those two guys. Paul Newman played Southerners all the time. He was in a dozen, dozens of movies where he's playing a Southerner, right? Cool Hand Luke, Long Hot Summer. But, I mean, he was Paul Newman. Yeah. You're, you're fascinated with New Orleans and Louisiana, but Streetcar Named Desire, of course, New Orleans is, is a character in the play, too. I mean, and the movie. Right. My, mom, my mom's family is from uh, southern Louisiana in Homa, 
and I would go once a year and I still have cousins that live in, in Homa and I've been to New Orleans and I grew up, you know, near New Orleans and, uh, I've been to bad, I have a friend who lives in Baton Rouge. So I'm really interested in that part of the country for a lot of reasons. It still seems to have a regional flavor and character and cuisine. And some of the people still speak French. Like my aunt speaks French. So yeah. And New Orleans in the movie and in the play, it crackles and pops and you feel like you're in the French quarter. All right, Ben, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Ben Beard about his book, The South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen. All right, Ben, we were talking about Tennessee Williams and his work adopted to the screen. And as you mentioned, almost all of his plays were. And he was a screenwriter, too. He's also got sort of pulled into the Hollywood money, right? But uh, most of the film versions are quite good. Uh, Sweet Bird of Youth is a very fine film. He's a special talent. And I didn't realize how big a deal he was in the 50s because, because all of his personal idiosyncratic beliefs about uh, human sexuality, even though he hides them in his plays, they're there. And a lot of his movies were big. Uh, these movie adaptations were big uh, releases and blockbusters. Tennessee Williams had an enormous influence on our country, even now. I think I've seen every one of them. Uh, the one that I didn't particularly care for was Nadia the Iguano. But I don't like that one either, but I'm not sure why. I think it just doesn't the, – the source material is good. I, I don't – I think I don't like the performances or something. Yeah, that one doesn't work for me either. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think Streetcar Named Desire is a nice step into – Deep South Sleaze and Louisiana Decay. And you mention in this chapter about visiting your, your grandparents in Homa, Louisiana. And what you say is Louisiana on screen often invokes swamps, Zydeco, racism, conspiracy, voodoo, blues, booze, strip joints, and a wild Catholicism mixed up with pagan animism. That's it, man. <laughs> no, uh, you know, okay, so... Louisiana outside of New Orleans is still a pretty crazy place. And on screen it is too. Uh, a movie I really like called Angel Heart, which follows a detective in the 50s and uh, maybe the 40s actually, but in a detective from Brooklyn travels down to Louisiana on a case and he comes across these sort of, um, he thinks it's a voodoo cult. There's a ton of movies that have that same description where it's Catholicism that's been intermingled with voodoo or whatever, some other pagan belief system. And I love it. Okay. I love it. And what I, Louisiana, because of the swamps, uh, Nevada Smith has a, is an old Western. It has a key scene where Stephen Queens put into a prison camp and the prison camp is surrounded by swamps. And one of the guard, one of the prisoners says like, where's the, um, where are the fences? What keeps us in? And the, one of the guards says, Oh, the, the whole area, this whole state is a prison. You, you can't get anywhere because you're <laughs> going to die in the swamp. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, not the whole state, but so I feel a great affinity with Louisiana, even though I don't ever travel there really anymore. And then of course, sometimes Louisiana is a setting of the film. You mentioned uh, one of the James Bond films, live and let die. Basically Bond is a fish out of water and the whole thing set in Louisiana and new Orleans is really pretty hokey. It's terrible. And the movie I loved when I was a kid and I rewatched it for the book and I was really shocked at how bad it is. But it is interesting to see James Bond in a, in a nice fashionable suit being pursued by kind of red, a redneck sheriff on speedboats through the bayous. <laughs> I mean, that. The, so one of the things that I was interested in is you have the film that you're watching, right? You have the context of the movie. But then you also can look behind the scene, like behind the actors and the action and stuff at the landscapes. And that tells a story, too. And Live and Let Die is interesting because of that. I mean, even though it's not a good movie, I was fascinated to, to watch it. And then, of course, uh, Bonnie and Clyde ends up in Louisiana, too. Which is a perfect, uh, it makes total sense, right? Like if you're going to have two young lovers gunned down in the wild 
if, if you just asked people on the street, where would that happen? They would probably say Louisiana or Florida, right? Maybe Texas. And, and it's, uh, it's what I mean by having a regional flavor. Uh, Louisiana has, a, to me, a discernible landscape that you can recognize and for me and like true detective season one was filmed there and had a lot of overhead shots of cars traveling on uh highways between with bayous and bodies of water on either side and over bridges and that 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 resonated with me just from my childhood well there of course is another louisiana and that is the louisiana of easy rider and my own experience with that was stationed at fort polk louisiana which is right on the the border of Cajun country and what they referred to as Protestant country. And being an Episcopalian, we went to the local Episcopal church. Our priest came from the lower part of the state. He, he did drive a pickup, and he had a rack behind the driver's seat where he, had his, he carried his shotgun. And he said that was not being just a good old boy. That was a necessity because if he wore his collar in public— above the Catholic line, people thought he was he was Catholic, and that was not exactly accepted in places like DeRitter, uh, Louisiana. That is incredible. I, that is, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, yeah, Easy Rider is interesting because it kicked off the new Hollywood. It was a low-budget movie where Dennis Hopper was given money he didn't really deserve, and he filmed, he got high on acid and took a filmed uh, sort of cinema verite style on the streets of New Orleans. And then they sent the footage back and the Hollywood producers behind it were screening it. And they're like, oh man, what is this, right? But the movie, it kind of pulls itself together and it became an enormous hit and really galvanized, re-galvanized Hollywood as a pop culture power. And and at least for a generation of, of folks my age who used the term easy rider and i could say somebody say well what's the louisiana where you were stationed i said it's easy easy rider country well everybody (laughs) immediately knew what i was talking about that's incredible you know so you know the land of the dodge charger sheriffs and the you know that kind of thing i mean it's yeah it, it was quite a contrast to the palms and swamps of florida <laughs> yeah let's move on you lived in you lived in Pensacola but that's not the kind of Florida that you taught the panhandle that's that's too much like mobile sunshine beaches booze drugs everybody and everything's for sale in Florida and you start off talking about Florida movies with porkies of all things yeah right so porkies is a, a teen sex comedy by Bob Clark who's probably an underrated director really uh, and it's a nasty, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a nasty, raunchy movie. But again, if you look behind the, the plot or the actual scenes, it, it actually tells a lot uh, about Florida, about uh, schools, about the era when it was filmed. And it has that double nostalgia thing, too, because you can watch it now and have nostalgia for the early 80s and also have nostalgia for the 50s when it was set. Right. Kind of like Greece, too, is another one. <laughs> and uh, I think the movie is is really well made and fascinating but and if you look at the kind of behind not the actual scenes or the raunchiness but if you look at the characters hanging out against the backdrop of that southern florida like sun damaged pines the movie says a lot it says a lot if we talk about a more recent movie you say your favorite florida movie is magic mike so I think this is a remarkable musical. It has great dance numbers. It reminds me of my childhood. Not I didn't work in a strip club or anything, but it was a lot of hanging out, driving around, and that Tampa kind of resembles, the, it's set in Tampa. It resembles Pensacola. It's much bigger, but it's it's um, strip malls and, and suburbs and exurbs and, and lots of four-lane roads and stuff and beaches uh, and certain types of trees. But the movie has a great cast, great characters. It's very funny. And I think it captures a truth about Florida as, um, on the one hand, everyone's having a party, everyone's having a good time. Uh, But on the other hand, there's a a desperate quality right underneath the surface. And there's also uh, an 
Matthew McConaughey is exploiting the dancers a little bit. I don't know. It's a, the, it's a movie that it, it resonates with me. It's really well made, too. It's, it's exquisitely filmed. Well, and what about Magic Mike? These are tragic white Southern males. They're not Tobacco Road, but they could be Faulkner-esque. I mean, they're kind of beaten down. They're struggling. They, they can't do anything else. He keeps trying to start a business, and no one will. He can't do it. And the people around him, they're all kind of ne'er-do-wells, and um, they're not drug addicts necessarily, but they're kind of low-level. They're kind of flunkies. They're on the edge of crime. Um, yeah, they're exactly – they're the, like, 21st century equivalent of, of Faulkner's depressives. Yeah, you're right on the money with that. Okay. Well, of course, with Florida, we can't do anything without Miami, but is Miami just New York South as a setting for crime and private detectives and what have you? I mean, I, I think so, but I, I feel like it would be wrong to write a move, uh, a chapter about Florida and not include Miami, right? Because it is, uh, it's a separate area. It has its own flavor. Uh, a lot of great movies touch on Miami, but is it part of the deep South? No, but is it part of the South? Yes. And like in Moonlight, which is a great movie, there's a young black man who's gay in Miami and he's struggling with, well, like on one area of Miami, he's struggling um, in many ways, like he would in any Southern town. And so I think Miami, obviously Miami is a, um, is an outlier, but it's still Florida. Yeah, I mean, well, well you're, you're, uh, you're you're right, and so are the keys, and you, you deal with them. Obviously, Key Largo. It's set in Florida, but it's all filmed on the back lot in Hollywood, right? Right. There's one ex- establishing shot right at the beginning, I believe, filmed down there. But yeah, they don't. Uh, that's part of the magic of movies is that uh, the the settings aren't oftentimes they aren't filmed in the South, but they're set there, and that uh, disconnect is weird. And sometimes we think we have an understanding of the, the keys. People watching Key Largo in back in the day probably felt like, if they thought about it at all, thought that they were getting a sense of the Florida Keys, and they were not. <laughs> they were getting a back lot in California. All right, let's let's close out Florida with Cool Hand Luke. One of the great films, uh, people don't realize it's set in Florida, but it is. And Luke gets on, Paul Newman plays Luke. A lot of people have seen it. Goes onto a chain gang and he um, suffers through a brutal, oppressive warden and they try to control his body and in some sense his thoughts and the, the horrible heat. You can feel the heat of Florida baking these men as they work outside. And that's another movie where what happens on screen is one thing, but then what you can see behind the screen is another. And you you see Florida that's both, that's like stuck in the past. Like they could be, that could be in the 1850s without the, if you took the cars away, what the men are doing and how they're living. Most people don't realize it's Florida. It could have been Alabama, Mississippi, or Georgia, not Louisiana. Uh, Correct. Although- could be Georgia. Georgia. I, in fact, I thought it was Georgia when I was watching it because there's no beaches or anything. And usually a Florida movie is going to have some intimation of a beach. And there's usually uh, skullduggery or some type of corruption in Florida films. But no, it is set in Florida. But you're right. It could, it could be set in any kind of deep south, not not Louisiana and not Texas, but a deep south state. And it, it makes sense. Well, you just gave us the perfect segue to go to Texas, yeah. to move to across the South to Texas. Some people don't consider Texas to be part of the South, just like they don't consider Florida to be part of the South. But you talk about such movies as Giant, The Alamo, the first time. Too many movies are being remade now, uh, like Cape Fear. Who wants to look at the next version? It's not as good as the original. I agree. But you, they but, should only make they should only remake bad films, right? Like really bad films. <laughs> well, in the in the Texas films, as you're discussing in this chapter, there's the theme of vengeance or, or rather revenge, the ex-Confederate, like Josie Wales. 
Yeah, I was really, this was something I stumbled upon. I didn't have, I wasn't carrying this with me when I was watching the movies and reading the books. There's this whole subgenre of the Confederate Avenger. And you see a bunch of these guys. You have Gary Cooper and Vera Cruz, which I don't think is even in the book. I think it got cut. You have um, Ethan Edwards and the Searchers. You have Josie Wales and the Outlaw Josie Wales, which was, I want to say, written by Asa Carter, who's a really famous guy because he wrote George Wallace's Segregation Forever speech, or it might have been based on a story he wrote. But yeah, so you have these Confederates who come back from the war and they've been wronged, usually by Union uh, soldiers who are dishonest and murderous. And then they go on... uh, Run of the Arrows, another one by Samuel Fuller. That's got Rod Steiger in it. But anyway, they go on a, a on a some type of revenge tale, and you would expect nowadays where they would realize at some point, oh, I've been wrong about everything. But that's not what happens in these films. Usually, they're right. They're seen as like they've been betrayed, and that the Southern cause. Well, they don't go into slavery in any of these movies or anything, but they've it's seen as a chivalrous, romantic. Uh, ideal they're like modern day knights and they're on this quest for revenge and that they're right and that's shocking well and of course you've got jimmy stewart and shenandoah and jude law and cole mountain right up across the border here in north carolina yeah shenandoah is a really weird movie because he uh he doesn't want to get he doesn't want to just doesn't want to be involved and then by not being involved, some of his kids get killed. And then he gets, that's a strange movie. It's, I, I didn't really care for it. Cold Mountain is, a, is fascinating. Uh, it's overheated. It's not a great movie. It's well-filmed, good cast. But yeah, he, but again, he doesn't, it was filmed in the 2000s. And in that movie, he doesn't do what he should. He doesn't kill the guy he should kill, right? And he ends up dying for it. Sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Cold Mountain. Well, I I think it's fair to say your favorite Texas movie was Giant. Giant is a magnificent movie. I think it's been reduced to the actors, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson. It's not my favorite. My favorite is probably There Will Be Blood, actually. But Giant, which tells a similar story, weirdly. But yeah, but Giant tells a story of a rancher of Texas turning from a ranching cowboy culture to an oil culture and what's lost when that happens and it's fairly unsentimental movie. So the ranchers aren't seen as necessarily heroes, but their lifestyle is going to be um, supplanted and erased by the discovery of oil by James Dean, who's the other kind of big actor in the movie. Um, But it's it's this epic tale of uh, involving racism uh, and what happens when a ton of new money pours into a state. Ben, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Ben Beard about his book, The South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen. All right, Ben, let's jump to the 10 movies that you say characterize the American South, and I'm going to quickly read them for our listeners. You say, these films distill the South, the Southerner. Cabin in the Sky, Intruder in the Dust, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, God's Little Acre, Nothing But a Man, Nashville, Deliverance, Magic Mike, Dogville, Mystery Train, School Days, Mississippi Grind, Monsters Ball, Spring Breakers, 99 Homes, Moonlight, 12 Years a Slave, and Free State of Jones. All right. Of, of those films, which one would you like to pick up and run with right now? I, I'll, I'll, two, I'll maybe do two quick ones. 99 Homes was this film that came and went, and it's set in Florida during the 2008 uh, housing crisis meltdown. Um, and it follows a guy who thinks he's done everything right, played by Andrew Garfield, and he, he loses his home even though he's done everything he's supposed to do over a kind of technicality. And then he ends up to make ends meet. He ends up working for the guy, Michael Shannon, who basically got his home through this weird legal loophole. And it's an incredible movie that I don't think anyone really watched. It's very, very, it's tense and dramatic. And it's white. It's like a white knuckle film, 
But I think it says a lot about the recent history of uh, what it felt like to live through 2008. Now, I didn't lose my home. I didn't own one. But I remember the kind of reverberations of that. And it's a remarkable movie. And then I would say Spring Breakers is also a remarkable film. That's Harmony Corinne's. It's almost a video essay. It follows these uh, four college, young college women who go down to um, Spring Break in, I want to say, Fort Lauderdale, and they fall in with a, a rapping, uh, drug-dealing James Franco. And it's um, bizarre. It's stunningly beautiful. It's um, strange and contradictory. But it seems to me to get to the truth of Florida in a way that a um, linear story might not. So you're saying that that is a better story about spring break than where the boys are. I, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> uh, you know, a movie that I say early, earlier in the book, that if you're only going to watch one movie, you should watch June Bug. And I'm not sure why I didn't, I don't remember why I didn't put it on the list, that list. But June Bug is a beautiful film about a guy who marries an English woman in a big city and then goes back town to a small, I want to say it's South Carolina, actually, but a small town in the South and brings her with him. And she is an art dealer and she meets his family and his family is sort of hot, not hostile to her, but they don't understand her and she doesn't understand them. They have deeply held religious beliefs. She doesn't. They don't understand why she wants to, is interested in folk art because they see it as kind of like throwaway, discardable trash. They don't understand that she comes from privilege. She doesn't understand that they don't. And through a series of kind of dramatic comic pieces, they everyone's trying their best, but it's not working. And there's a scene in there that I'll, I'll never forget where she goes to a church function with her husband and her husband's family. And they're at a, like a little barbecue. And I've been to dozens of these and hundreds of these in my life. And he gets called up to sing a hymn in front of the entire congregation. And he does it. And the camera wa shows her watching him sing this song. And it's such an, she's usually in a normal movie, she would be redeemed or, or happy or something, but she's sort of disturbed and even horrified at her husband's ability to engage in, in this public display of belief. Um, and it's a wonderful movie. And so adding to that list of 10 movies, <laughs> anyone listening, if you haven't seen June Bug, you should put it at the top of your list. Okay. Um, and I think it's actually in North Carolina. But North Carolina. Yeah, but it, right. it, hey, it, small town, the small town South, upcountry South Carolina, North Carolina, most of Alabama, Georgia, the panhandle of Florida, it's pretty much the same. It really is. Yeah, I agree. One of the films we have not touched on, and probably a lot of folks today haven't seen, is Cabin in the Sky with an all-black cast, but it was the black world as seen by white filmmakers. And I, I understand people, when the people hear that described to them, they're like, oh, you know, I don't, do we need this? However, it's a great movie. It's directed by Vincent Minnelli, who's one of the great musical directors. It has wonderful songs, and it's got some discomforting imagery a little bit, but it's it's really a fine film. And I would say to it's usually weirdly, a lot of people who would say, "Well, we shouldn't watch that." In my life, anyway, it's often it's often white people who are like, oh, we shouldn't watch that, right? But it's important, even back in the day, an all-black cast mattered. And it, uh, so I don't think it should be dismissed so easily. And it has incredible dance numbers in it, uh, unforgettable dance numbers in it. And it gives us a South that's totally segregated, and it follows the, uh, the sort of black part of town. And that to me is a really valuable historical, forgetting that it's a great movie or a very good movie. That's a hidden important historical document and artifact. 30 years ago, 
when I headed Southern Studies at the university, we did a film series and we asked African-American faculty to pick movies to show African-Americans in film. And every one of them nominated Cabin in the Sky, and which, we, which we, we showed. Uh, and Professor Grace McFadden, who was then uh, with African-American Studies, introduced it and said why she thought it was an important film for all Southerners to watch. It's incredible. I mean, that's that's sort of my point. I, I, I don't see any reason why. First off, Vincent Minnelli on his own, his movies should be watched, and he's an important director. But the fact that he chose to make a movie with an all-black cast, I, I don't see how that's a bad thing. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's close with a, a movie that's not one of your favorites, but I think everybody knows, and that's because it, most of it was filmed here in South Carolina, and that's Forrest Gump. Well, I like Forrest Gump a lot. Uh, let me say, I think it's um, I think it's remarkably well made, but it's a very frustrating film for a lot of reasons. And I met a guy once. This was in Atlanta, who said he thought it was one of the most conservative movies ever made. Not that politics have to always be a consideration, but I was really shocked to hear this. I said, "What are you talking about?" Right? It's like it's showing the horrors of the Vietnam War, and he's like pro civil rights. And the guy was like, "Well, that's all. Like those are the easy ones." Right. And he was like, but if you really watch the movie, look at it. Well, so I don't know if I agree with him exactly, but I do think there's something frustrating about a guy who has a very low IQ, who's sort of like, but he's actually the smartest guy in the room because he can see the real thing. He can see the real truth that none of us can see. And there's something frustrating about that. And then two, the movie is it has this, it's stuck in this sort of like, let's celebrate Alabama, the small town Alabama, but we also should recognize that it's, there might be a few flaws, but it's, it's great. Right. And you, when they're in New York, it's like prostitutes and honking cars. And, and, um, you know, when they're in Alabama, it's this, uh, beautiful ponds and, and great sunsets and, and wonderful magnolia trees. And so the, the movie, the movies, it's a very complicated film in a lot of ways, but I like it. I mean, I think it's... Well, uh, well the author, yeah. Winston Groom, uh, was, was a complicated individual. I grew up with Winston, and part of this is his world. He was actually a very successful actor in productions as a teenager in Mobile. He played in Glass Menagerie, for example. Uh, he was a journalist lived in that wild New York that is depicted in Forrest Gump. And initially the film was supposed to be filmed in Alabama, and then they decided they couldn't quite find the scenery that they liked, so they filmed it in Beaufort, South Carolina in, instead. And there was a, an individual that Winston and I both knew growing up who was autistic, and that's where he got his idea uh, that became the novel and then, of course, later the movie. Again, I, I actually really like this film. And it's a very important movie for me, for my personal life. I was about 18 when it came out. And it was a movie I watched that didn't have, um, you know, fighting robots or, or thrill killers. I mean, you know, because I, I had kind of bad taste as a kid. So it was a movie that it means a lot to me in a lot of ways. But revisiting it over the years, I mean, it's a complicated movie. What it's saying about America, I think, is kind of complicated. Uh, and... But I, I, it has some incredible scenes. And it's fascinating that he ba – so he based Forrest Gump on a guy that you guys knew? Yeah. Um, I didn't know. It's incredible. And by the way, Winston was also a combat veteran of Vietnam. So that he, – he himself had a, a very uh, interesting and complicated life. And having grown up with him, there's an awful lot of Winston that I can, can see in his depiction of – Alabama, and certainly his depiction of the big city and Vietnam. I think the Vietnam section is incredible. I think it's a, a, a wonderful bit of, of celluloid. And, of course, he was a devoted University of Alabama fan, even wrote a history of Alabama football. So that, that's where that appears in the film, too, <laughs> the novel. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Ben, Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words you'd like to leave with our listeners before we have to sign off today? Well, the book is supposed to be fun. And ultimately, what I try to do, I'm trying to reconcile the contradictions in my own mind, right, uh, about the South and America and how the two are related. 
But I don't think the South should be uh, condemned for all of America's racial sins. I think that's wrong. But I don't think the South should be celebrated for them either. And so I guess I'm working through, through the movies, because I'm a big movie fan, I'm working through my own beliefs or lack of them through the movies. And I'm trying to find where they came from. I am writing from a place of great love for cinema, even if it seems like I mock some of the movies. Well, Ben Beard, author of The South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen. Thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I found this a fascinating book, The Various Souths on Film. And South Carolina doesn't play that big a role in Hollywood. Obviously, there are movies like Deliverance and Pat Conroy's novels that have been made into film that depict South Carolina. And occasionally, there are some South Carolina connections. But when moviegoers think about the South and film, they think about Louisiana, they think about the Deep South in Alabama or Mississippi. In Gone with the Wind, the one reflection of South Carolina, of course, is Rhett Butler's famous line of, he's going back to Charleston where there's the only real culture in the South. But Ben Beard, a native Southerner, has spent much of his life viewing films as a critic and just as something he really enjoys and it shows in this book. And since he does include South Carolina films, the depiction of all of our Souths is a part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.